Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Before we get started, I want to remind our audience of what we mentioned last week, uh, namely the truly exciting October 4th debut of America's Constitution's availability for continuing legal education credit for lawyers and judges. Uh, this is the result of our partnership with the New Jersey State Bar Association. But again, we want to emphasize that it's not by any means limited to those of you who practice in New Jersey, and you don't have to be a member of the New Jersey State Bar Association. Uh, pretty much anyone licensed anywhere in the U.S. is eligible in their own state through reciprocity agreements with New Jersey, and you'll receive 1.2 uh, credits for an episode of America's Constitution that you listen to, beginning with the October 4th episode, and also with some prior episodes. So be sure to tune in on October 4th, and we'll have more details. And to mark the occasion, we'll have a very, very special guest as well, so it'll be a, a memorable episode all around. So recently we did an episode where we took some audience questions, and our ambition to take 12 questions was... Thwarted by verbosity and uh, and probably areas of interest. So uh, we took three. And so today we're going to take some more, but we're also going to talk about other matters uh, as they arise uh, in the news and in our discussion. And uh, so one thing that came up recently uh, and continues to come up are questions surrounding sort of the, the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. And by the way, uh, just broadly, you know, when we went through these questions, uh, we see that the audience is interested in talking, you know, having further discussion about things that we've talked about before. And so last time we talked about the 303 case and we talked uh, about judicial ethics um, and censuring of, of, of justices, things like that. Um, and those are things that we've talked about before and that people asked about. So some of the things that we'll that we also seen, have seen that you've asked about are questions regarding affirmative action, um, questions regarding the 14th Amendment, or that one we're going to take in a, in a separate episode. You mean um, the 14th Amendment section, section three. three? correct. And questions about unenumerated rights, like things like Obergefell and, and other uh, cases like that. Um, so those are some of the areas broadly that we'll probably touch on because you're interested in it, and we think there's more to say. Um, but Dobbs is also a never-ending uh, font of, of conversation, even if the court on several occasions in their abortion jurisprudence has seek to say, to say this is, or have sought to say this is the last word on this. In fact, I think in Casey they actually say that. But now we're going to get yes. the return Bring to... Bring an end to this, yes, national div divisiveness, yes. Right. And now... We will fall in line. Right. Salute. Right. And now in Dobbs, they say, okay, we're out of this business, but, um, you know, maybe not. So what's been happening lately, uh, Akil, that, that, you th that you, has drawn your attention? There's an interesting article by our friend uh, Jamel Bowie in the New York Times about the efforts in various states. I think Texas is one, Alabama is another, to pen women in to uh, prevent them through various mechanisms 
from leaving or attempting to leave the state or to prevent other people from helping them to leave the state to procure lawful abortions in other states. In a piece that Jamel publishes on September 2nd, here's what he reports, and he's building on other reporters as well. Steve Marshall, Alabama's Republican Attorney General, announced in a court filing that the state has the right to prosecute people who make travel arrangements for women to have an out-of-state to have out-of-state abortions. These arrangements, he argued, amounts to a quote criminal conspiracy. Unquote. This is now also a quote. The conspiracy is what's being punished, even if the final conduct never occurs, Marshall's filing states. That conduct is Alabama-based and is within Alabama's power to prohibit, unquote. In Texas, Jamel goes on, Jamel Bowie goes on to say, anti-abortion activists and lawmakers are using local ordinances to try to make it illegal to transport anyone to get an abortion on roads within city or county limits. Abortion opponents behind one such measure are targeting regions along interstate along interstates and in areas with airports. And and that's quoting Caroline Kitchener from the Washington Post. And the goal is, Kitchener reports and, and Bowie reiterates, the goal is to block off the main arteries out of Texas and keep pregnant women hemmed within the confines of their anti-abortion state. So that's what's going on right now in major articles in the WashPo and the New York Times. So what, uh, I mean, it, uh, first of all, I have to say it sounds out- absolutely outrageous. That's what it sounds like. Now let's see what it actually is. I guess, you know, it's hard to know where to start, but I guess, you know, one thing I might ask is, is when we, if we look at it, you know, from a federal level as opposed to, you know, the state level, since I don't think we want to get into a microanalysis of Texas state law and Alabama state law, you know, are there federal constitutional rights or federal constitutional principles that are implicated by these sorts of behaviors? Yes, there are structural and textual uh, provisions that are applicable. But let me take first a step back and locate all this in the context of this podcast and our history. Okay, this is America's Constitution. We do have a tradition. So way before Dobbs, I want to remind our audience that we had a, a series of episodes one of which I believe we called the Dobbs deal. And here's what I said a long time ago. I said, Roe is gone no matter what. I can count. And it's a stupid argument, and it will lose to just say precedent, precedent, precedent. That was my position. My position was the precedents themselves say that when the precedents are egregiously wrong, that they don't align with the Constitution, they can be tossed overboard. And so when people like Solicitor General Prelogger actually got up before the Supreme Court and said, oh, you've never done this before, you've never just overruled a precedent merely because it was wrongly decided, you now believe, I was shouting and shrieking because that's not true. I said there are seven precedents in the 20th century alone that overruled earlier cases simply because those earlier cases were deemed Erroneous, and and one of those is a famous case called Erie, which we talked about a lot in in Moore versus Harper our sessions. So I said, precedent is not great argument. 
we could talk about women's equality, and that would be an argument to talk about. So the liberals, you know, could talk about that. They they could say, you know, the problem with women's equality, we argued, or I argued, one problem is it doesn't quite tell you whether the line can be drawn at conception or six weeks, a fetal heartbeat, or 15 weeks or 23 weeks viability. So does it is it an argument, women's equality, that you can abort, you know, up to a delivery day, even a fully viable fetus, 33 weeks, something like that? So I said, here's a theory. Theory might be, um, and this was the Dobbs deal. And I said, this is what the liberals should argue for. They should try to get the chief on board and then reach out to Kavanaugh. Okay, six weeks, because the, the law at issue in Dobbs was 15 weeks. Now, that's not Roe compliant, but you could say that law is actually acceptable. This is you're going to have to have a strategic retreat. You're going to have to retreat from from viability, which is kind of made up. But 15 weeks, it's actually intellectually defensible in a couple of ways. One, it's kind of the sweet spot of where the states actually you know are. Six weeks and conception laws really are outliers. 15 weeks is actually in line with state practice. And from the woman's point of view, it gives her enough time to make a decision. Okay. And now we're not focusing on the fetus, which is what viability is about, but the woman. And I actually thought, well, if it's about women's equality, focus on the woman, focus on whether she has enough time. She has to know she's pregnant and she has to then make decisions. So I said, 15 weeks, you can actually have a theory. It can be a woman-based theory, an equality-based theory. And though we were insistent Oh, there are going to be some complexities. Sometimes you learn something even after 15 weeks. You get an amniocentesis or or something like that. So we said the Dobbs deal should also focus on the right to travel, the ability to receive lawful reproductive care, lawful pregnancy terminations, very bluntly lawful abortions in sister states. So that's what I argued for even before the opinion came down that that's what the liberals should be you know, trying to do because they're going to lose on row and they're going to have to have some sort of strategic retreat and and they can just, you know, lose big or, you know, have a, a, a tactical retreat and try to consolidate. And I said they should try to reach out to John Roberts and to then once they have John Roberts reach across the aisle to Brett Kavanaugh and say, we actually are a bipartisan coalition, unlike the folks on, on the other side. But what that will mean is the Mississippi law is going to be upheld. Okay. That's what they're giving up, but you're going to lose that anyway. And I said, instead of saying dumb stuff like precedent, 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 refocus on women, focus on equality. The big problem with equality is where do you draw the line? 15 weeks actually has a conceptual coherence to it. It gives women enough time and on the state counting approach is the sweet spot. Okay. You also also wanted to include uh, financial assistance uh, was okay. Yes, indigent women, okay, and and financial assistance could be you know provided by GoFundMe's, uh, private charities, by sister states, all of that, okay. That was the Dobbs deal, and our audience can go back and and listen to that. And the right to travel, I thought, was really important in all of that because I knew this was going to be the next step, okay. And then when Dobbs came down, I did draw the audience's attention to the fact that of the five justices who joined either who authored or joined Justice Alito's majority opinion, Justice Alito himself, joined by Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, that's five. Of those, only one 
wrote separately, that was Justice Kavanaugh, and he wrote separately in part, he actually went out of his way to talk about this right to travel issue, which, and I thought that was actually significant. When we had our episode with Ruth Marcus, the first of two, she's coming back, um, audience, so don't worry, you're going to hear more from her. She said, oh, it's kind of, you know, that's such a small thing, you know, the, the right to travel. I said, no, it's actually a big thing, okay, because the joke I told, which is true, is, you know, when I got tenure, I said, gee, it doesn't seem to make a difference. And my friend said, actually, it's not getting tenure that makes a difference. Ruth, if you think this is not a big deal, imagine a world where actually you're penned in. You can't leave Texas. That's a very big deal. I know you want to have, uh, Ruth, abortion access everywhere in America, okay? But if you're not going to get that and you're not, this right to travel is absolutely essential. And Kavanaugh was the one who teed it up. Now, I want our audience to know all of that because I think we're a smart podcast and I think we're teeing up for our audience. We're, we're telling them a year or a year and a half in advance what's going to happen, what's going to be the next move, which is this is what they're going to try to do and let's be ready for it. And good for Justice Kavanaugh. I don't, we don't know whether he or one of his clerks listened to the episode or just this was completely independent, but the dissenters in Dobbs weren't talking about this. They weren't having this fallback position. So, Andy, do you have actually in front of you Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion? And to repeat, he's the only one of the five that wrote separately. Now, three dissenters, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor and Contenji Brown-Jackson, and a separate opinion by John Roberts, in effect saying 15 weeks is, is okay, concurring in the result, but not in the opinion, because he basically said, we don't need to, you know, sweep row overboard. All we need to do is just say 15 weeks is, is actually okay under an undue burden framework or something. But of the five who um, either authored or joined the elite opinion, only Kavanaugh wrote separately. And you and I, Andy, thought this one passage is like three sentences, four sentences, but we thought this is very important. Pay attention to this. So, Andy, you want to read our audience what he said? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two paragraphs here that are relevant, and they're preceded by this sentence. He says, um, but the party's arguments have raised other related questions, and I address some of them here. First is the question of how this decision will affect other precedents involving issues such as contraception and marriage. In particular, the decisions in Griswold versus Connecticut, Eisenstadt versus Baird, Loving versus Virginia, and Obergefell versus Hodges. I emphasize what the court today states. Overruling Roe does not mean the overruling of those precedents and does not threaten or cast doubt on those precedents. And the word not is italicized twice. And Andy, hang on. So I actually did misspeak. There was another an opinion by someone who joined Alito. That was Justice Thomas. And he wrote a concurrence on the right saying, oh, maybe we should rethink Griswold. Okay, so let me revise and extend what I said before. So so he did that. And, and Kavanaugh is directly responding to that. And, and before we get to the right to travel, here's another thing that I always said. You know, and, and truthfully, I think the events of the last couple of years, year and a half, have vindicated this. I said, Griswold is not at risk. Loving is not at risk. Obergefell is not at risk to move beyond those case names because this is a podcast you know, for a general audience. Right of contraception 
is not imperiled. Don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. If one weird outlier state tries to make it happen, that's going to be smacked down immediately by lower courts and by this backed by the Supreme Court. If you are worried that they're the right of interracial marriage and loving is at risk, do not be. You know, that's not going to happen. If one weird outlier state tries to uh, go after that, it, it's going to be smacked down by lower courts and they'll be backed by the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court majority, including people who are joining the elite opinion. And if you're worried about same-sex marriage, do not be, okay? Because that's not going to happen. And, and it hasn't, you see. I said, here are the things to be worried about. The things to be worried A national ban on abortion, not Texas, my friend Ruth Marcus, everywhere. That is a realistic possibility if America elects a Republican president and a Republican Congress. That will be the first thing on their agenda. And Ruth, you don't like Dobbs, but oh my God, it's so different if you can't get an abortion in Texas, but you can go to New Mexico versus you can't get abortion anywhere in America, including in California, including in New York, even if you're a New Yorker or Californian, then you have to go to Canada. And I said, that's really, so focus on that and focus on right to travel. Those are the big issues. And now you're going to tell us, but, but on Obergefell, Griswold and Loving, I said, those are not at risk. Kavanaugh is going out of his way. And without Kavanaugh, you can't get to five votes for the, uh, you know, any kind of conservative outcome. He's saying, don't worry about those cases. I, Brett Kavanaugh, think that these are clearly established. And there are reasons why, because those actually have stronger constitutional roots in the approach that we've talked about before, that equal means equal and that unenumerated rights can be deduced in part from consensus of state practice. Well, I think... You know, he says in, elsewhere in the opinion, which I think is, is important, he outlines his criteria for when you would overturn a decision. So, so given that he's saying that these are not at risk, and here are the criteria under which, in general, you know, I, I would you know, overrule decisions, I think it's relevant to see what his criteria are. Okay. Um, so what he says is, when precisely should the court overrule an erroneous constitutional precedent? The history of stare decisis in this court establishes that a constitutional precedent may be overruled only when, one, the prior decision is not just wrong, but is egregiously wrong. Two, the prior decision has caused significant negative jurisprudential or real-world consequences. And three, overruling the prior decision would not unduly upset legitimate reliance interests. Those are his criteria. So, and my view about Justice Kavanaugh is not only does he not think that Obergefell is, you know, he doesn't think it's egregiously wrong. I don't think he, he actually thinks it's wrong. I think he thinks it's right because equally means equal. People who are born straight can marry, then people who are born gay can marry. And if Patrick can marry Jane, then Patricia can marry Jane. So that's why Obergefell is just right on the constitutional merits. And there are unenumerated rights. And we talked about it in a recent episode when we took audience questions. Griswold, it's a real outlier. It, it flunks the test in Dobbs itself, where you actually look at they practice, the Glucksburg test, the, the Connecticut law at issue in, in Griswold flunks that. So Griswold is easy. Loving is easy. Of course, actually, you can't have race discrimination. That's actually what they said in the, the affirmative action case. They're, they're a colorblind court. So, of course, if a white person can marry another white person, then a black person can, can marry that white person. So it's not only that those cases are not egregiously erroneous. I think Brett Kavanaugh thinks, and I'm with him, 
those cases are not erroneous at all or put differently are rightly decided, I would say, are clearly rightly decided. So, of course, you're not going to overrule them. And in the history of precedents in America, Andy, I can't think of, I can think of precedents that have been overruled that really were wrongly decided, like Gobitis is overruled by Barnett on flag salutes. Swift versus Tyson is overruled by, by Erie. I actually can't think of a case that's pretty clearly right that was, in fact, overruled by the court later on. Can't think of one. Well, in all fairness, I mean, you're giving your opinion on why it's right. Um, you're not mm-hmm. giving Justice Kavanaugh's opinion on why it's right, because he hasn't really said, you know, uh, on this. But 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 I think having read what he's written and knowing what he's read, I think I know his mind pretty well. I think I've made some, you know, plausible predictions about what he, uh, where he would be and why. Well, but my point here is that you don't have to know his mind because you can see what he's saying. I mean, what what he's saying is that he would have to decide that it's not just wrong but egregiously wrong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that he doesn't think that right now. Correct. So in other words, you know, something would have to happen to turn it into something egregiously yeah. wrong. Right. Um, and it, these decisions just don't appear to be the sorts of – they appear to have a certain stability. I mean, Griswold mm-hmm. has been there for a long time. And what's going to happen that that's going to turn it into egregiously wrong? Right. Whereas but, Roe, he clearly always thought was egregiously wrong. Right. Right. And, and and every Trump appointee would, and every DeSantis appointee would, and and if it had been Jeb Bush, every Jeb Bush appointee would, because the Republican Party has been saying forever in its party platforms, we are opposed to Roe. But on the, the my reason for thinking that that Kavanaugh not only actually doesn't believe that loving is egregiously wrong, but thinks it's right. Actually, we have his votes in the affirmative action cases. He's a colorblindness person. We have his commitment, you know, his embrace of the Dobbs majority opinion itself that actually uses a Glucksburg framework that's accounting framework. So Clarence Thomas actually joined the opinion, but maybe doesn't, you know, fully accept, you know, the logic of counting in Glucksburg. And on Just to clarify that, Akil, you, what you mean by counting is that you're you're counting, you know, state states basically. Right. You know. And right. by the way, um, speaking of counting states, he actually says um, when he's talking about about Dobbs, he says in this case, a majority of the states, twenty six in all, ask the court to overrule Roe and return the abortion issue to the states. So even in in Kavanaugh's analysis in this case. He's using accounting framework, and you might not, you know, like it, you know, that he's using it. But the point is that but, this is this is a methodology that he employs, and of course, he employed it in Bruin as well when he talked about, um, you know, the New York state law in the gun cases being an outlier. Four times in Bruin, he wrote a concurrence. That was an opinion by Justice Thomas, majority opinion. Here is by Justice Leto. But in Bruin, which was about guns, it's a three-page concurrence authored by Kavanaugh joined by Chief Justice Roberts. And in three pages, four different times, I think the word 43 appears. He says 43 states actually are different from New York. It's actually 44 if you count Vermont. So he's saying New York is an outlier. That makes it easy to vote against the New York law. That was a a gun law. And here he's saying this law in Mississippi and Dobbs is not an outlier. And the Glucksburg framework is about outlier statutes. And if that's the framework, 
Griswold is easy and obvious because Griswold was a weird outlier statute. And that's why Justice Thomas, I think, is at odds with the opinion he himself joined, Alito's opinion, which is about counting. So that's why I think that Kavanaugh has reason. He's giving us reason to think not only that Griswold is not egregiously wrong, you know, it's it's maybe not even wrong. It's actually right under this counting analysis. So that's why I think that he actually agrees with Griswold. And there's a, a framework he's given us. I think he agrees with Loving versus Virginia, both on a counting framework. <laughs> there are no states today that are really trying to prohibit interracial marriage, but also on an equality framework, because the text really is about equality and birth equality and racial equality at the core. He has joined more recently this opinion on colorblindness in school admissions. So it would be kind of outrageous to say, oh, gee, you, you can't treat blacks better in school admissions, but you, you can, in effect, treat them worse when they want to marry a white person and another white person is allowed to, to marry, but a black person, no. Okay. So then all we're left with is Obergefell. And it's true that I can't point you to a Kavanaugh opinion that has squarely addressed that issue. But what I said in our conversation with Ruth Marcus, who said, oh, Kavanaugh is kind of so different from Kennedy. And there's a piece, actually, Andy, in the Washington Post by Robert Barnes talking about Kennedy's legacy as we have our conversation now. And some Kennedy clerks are quoted. Leah Littman has a, a podcast with our friend Kate Shaw and friend Melissa Murray, a Strict Scrutiny. So she's quoted. My former TA, Richard Ray, is quoted. Some of, of Kennedy's clerks are quoted. And they sound like Ruth Marcus saying, oh, you know, the court is so different from Kennedy. Kavanaugh is so different from Kennedy. You remember, I pushed back. I said, I actually don't think so. Kennedy himself actually didn't love affirmative action. Kennedy himself waffled on abortion. But I think Kavanaugh is as one with Kennedy on Obergefell. I can't prove that. But what I did say is Kennedy chose to step down and he didn't have to. And he thought his legacy would be safe in general with Kavanaugh, who we expected to replace him and who did replace him or, or succeed him. And nothing, I think, is more important in Justice Kennedy's own mind to his legacy than Obergefell. And so that was in part my reason for thinking that at least Kennedy thought that Kavanaugh you know, was solid on Obergefell and, and Kavanaugh clerked for Kennedy for a year. And that was my reason for that. Yes, it's an assessment. It's a it's a bet. And justices can change their mind. Justice Kennedy changed his mind in the middle of the Casey case. But but I actually think Kavanaugh and we haven't got to the right to travel part of it yet. Going out of his way to say, don't worry about Griswold. Don't worry about loving. Don't worry about Obergefell. So if you were someone that was worried about these cases um, and you were going to look at Dobbs as reason to worry, you might look at the rationale, you know, the reasoning that they're striking Roe down. In other words, what are they saying is wrong with Roe? And are those same things plausibly wrong with these other cases? Could that exactly. same rationale be applied to these other cases? Exactly. And, and it, it can't. And what is it about Roe that they, specifically that they're striking down that does that, you know, that they're saying, OK, this is why it has to go. That doesn't apply to these other cases. Because the other cases are rooted in at least one of the following two ideas, that there's something clearly in the text of the Constitution when it comes to loving and when it comes to Obergefell, the birth equality idea, 
and substantive due process isn't really rooted you know, strongly in the text of the Constitution, and and the dissenters didn't really argue equality very strongly, and equality doesn't explain you know, why 15 weeks isn't good enough. Okay, so there's not a textual foundation, point one. And when we actually do a kind of counting analysis, because there are unenumerated rights, whether we count at uh, circa 1866 or 68 when the 14th Amendment is adopted, or we count in 1973 when Roe was decided, or today, and that was Justice Kavanaugh saying, you know, 26 states are actually asking us to overrule it the, uh, on this unenumerated rights counting analysis a la Glucksburg, the Roe right isn't robust. Whereas the Loving versus Virginia right, the, the Griswold right are robust. And today, actually, I think same-sex marriage as well. I'll put one final way, Andy, because remember my prediction two years ago that all these people making all these alarmist claims saying Obergefell is at risk. And I say, no, it's actually not. I can't See, prove the negative, but you're not seeing Texas and Alabama, you know, going after Obergefell quite the way they, I said, here's what you have to pay attention to. You have to pay attention to the possibility of a national abortion ban, and you have to pay attention to whether even if Texas can prohibit abortion or Mississippi, whether people can travel out of state. Those are the things that are at risk, not contraception, interracial marriage, or same-sex marriage. So in terms of what you said about, uh, you know, an accounting analysis here, I think that um, he makes it very clear that that's what he's applying. So at the beginning of the opinion, and he has footnote one, and let me read you footnote one. Um, he says, the court's opinion today also recounts the pre-constitutional common law history in England. And by the way, that was, you know, ridiculed, uh, you know, large, widely by critics of the opinion. But he, he, he goes on here to say that you don't need it. Okay, he says, that English history supplies background information on the issue of abortion. As I see it, the dispositive point in analyzing American history and tradition for purposes of the 14th Amendment inquiry is that abortion was largely prohibited in most American states as of 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, and that abortion remained largely prohibited in most American states until Roe was decided in 1973. So whether or not you agree with him, you can see that he's adopting this counting analysis at almost every turn. Three times, three times at the time of the 14th Amendment. He's actually saying the founding isn't very relevant. It's a 14th Amendment question. So 1866, 1973 when Roe was decided, and today when he's saying 26 states. That's exactly you know, my framework, and it's his framework, because I actually think he and I are doing con law kind of the same way. Okay, so I, the reason I'm I'm bringing up these things is not necessarily to express agreement with Justice Kavanaugh, but to, you know, to just point out how we can try to understand his reasoning. And I think it's He's important. giving us reasons for limiting it. Yeah, and I think it's important because, you know, in a lot of people have written off this concurrence as being, oh, he just wants, he doesn't want people to hate him. He doesn't want people to drive by his house and try to kill him, you know, and things like that. And, you know, I'm sure those things are true that he, that, but, but it, that he doesn't want those things to happen. But at the same time, it, it you know, if you're going to dismiss this as, as not containing any reasoning, I think, you know, I think you have to look at it and see if there is reasoning there. So, yes. Um, okay, so and that's what you always do, Andy. Um, so here's what I'm saying. 
let's actually take people seriously on both sides. So let's take the Republicans seriously, the Republican Party. They have been opposing Roe forever, and that's why people should have been on notice. Okay, take them seriously. Take seriously Justice Alito. He says this is not going to radiate past that. Take seriously Justice Thomas, who actually, although he joined that opinion, truthfully didn't quite agree with that and told us so. So take that seriously, but that's one vote. Justice Thomas, you know, might want to rethink Griswold. But even then, maybe he wants to say, let's rethink substantive due process. Perhaps it can be defended under privileges or immunities or something. But but take seriously his reasons, what he actually has said. And so, too, with Justice Kavanaugh. Thank you very much, Andy, because I had forgotten that footnote. But it's absolutely methodologically rigorous. And it explains why he's saying what he is saying about Obergefell, Loving, and Griswold. Yes. Okay, so now let's get to the next and really more important, as far, or at least important as far as travel goes. Um, he says, and again, just to refresh your memory, because we've talked for a while, um, this is his response to what he says, the party's arguments have raised other related questions. Okay. So he says, second, as I see it, some of the other abortion-related legal questions raised by today's decision are not especially difficult as a constitutional matter. For example, may a state bar a resident of that state from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion? In my view, the answer is no, based on the constitutional right to interstate travel. May a state retroactively impose liability or punishment for an abortion that occurred before today's decision takes effect? In my view, the answer is no, based on the due process clause or the ex post facto clause. And then he, he goes on to say that other things might come up. Um, and Andy, just one word on that that, I, that I'm hearing. I, we, you and I have talked offline, but is ringing in my ears. The parties. Because remember what you and I argued way back when for the Dobbs dealers. Oh, the liberal justices should be arguing about the right to travel and teeing that up. Okay, because that was really important. And just because you're losing on the, the case at hand, you don't want to, you know, instead of pumping up the volume and losing big and saying, oh, this means, you know, that we're, uh, that Griswold is gone and Obergefell is wrong and is gone and, and Loving is gone. Yeah, that's one strategy. You know, that's a very dangerous strategy. Or do damage control saying, actually, we disagree with the court today, but Griswold is solid under the analysis, the framework of Glucksburg and Loving uh, remains and Obergefell remains and right to travel is really important. And we need to talk about that because what Mississippi is doing would be much, much, much worse, a much bigger deprivation of liberty, a much more serious assault on liberty, fundamental freedoms and rights. If in addition to saying you can't get an abortion, it tried to say you can't leave the state. Okay, and Mississippi is not doing that here. We still think they've gone too far, but it's an important to acknowledge that the majority is not saying that they, you know, can pen women in. Um, so they should have been talking about that right to travel um, issue. That's what we begged them to do in our episode called the Dobbs Deal. They didn't, but good for Kavanaugh for talking about it because the parties did mention this. 
And this is relevant to the conversation we had with, with, with Ruth when she said, you know, well, that's cold comfort. I said, yeah, but it's going to be really important going forward that, that, that Texas can't pen you in. And the real danger was and still is on abortion, a national abortion ban by Congress, because I do think the logic of this opinion would allow that. And Kavanaugh, I think, would allow that as well. Well, there there is a uh, footnote elsewhere that says that um, that Chief Justice Rehnquist, um, in dissent in uh, one of the abortion cases, said that it would be unconstitutional to not allow abortion to save the life of the mother. Um, so that that's interesting that a very conservative justice is on record as as saying that. Okay. I mean, that would be cold comfort, I think. You know, in in the face of a national abortion ban, but it's something to keep in mind anyway. Um, Okay, so, well, all right, well, what about this constitutional right to interstate travel? What is that right? Where'd that come from? The structure of the Constitution as a whole, where do ideas like separation of powers come from? Checks and balances, the rule of law, the, the, very, fra- the very concept of federalism. And federalism has at least two components – one is the relationship between the central government and the state governments, but that's sometimes called vertical federalism. But federalism is also about the relationships of the states to each other, what's called horizontal federalism. And these things are related in one of the greatest cases of all time on vertical federalism, McCulloch versus Maryland. The opinion of the court by the great Chief Justice John Marshall says, Maryland can't impose a tax on the federal bank, because the part can't kind of interfere with the whole, that's vertically. But then Marshall brilliantly gives you another way of seeing the same thing. He says, in effect, when Maryland is imposing a tax on a federal bank, they're imposing a tax on sister states, because the sister states of New York and Connecticut and Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, etc., through Congress have actually created this bank and, and federal money has, has gone into the bank. And that federal money is coming from places outside of Maryland, coming from places like New York and Connecticut and, and Massachusetts and, and Rhode Island and Pennsylvania. So, of course, we wouldn't let Maryland tax New York directly. It's not represented um, no taxation without representation. We wouldn't let Maryland tax Connecticut directly. And that's a horizontal federalism idea. And for the same reasons, of course, we shouldn't let Maryland tax a, a federal bank. So you could see it vertically. You could see it horizontally. So the first answer I gave you, Andy, to your question is, you said, where is that? I say it's in the structure of the Constitution as a whole. And no one thinks that's you know, wrong when we talk about separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, rule of law, that there are these structural concepts. This is an idea associated with the great Charles Black. We had an episode about him. We talked about him in a recent episode when we actually talked ab- ab- about even unenumerated rights being deducible from the structure of the Constitution, such as a right of free expression, political expression, even before there was a First Amendment. So that's yeah. one idea. Then there's several clauses that actually are kind of relevant if you want to try to then connect the dots among the clauses. And those clauses include the Article 4 Privileges and Immunities Clause, the Article 4 
full faith and credit clause. Article 4 is about interstate relations. Certain aspects of the commerce clause, which is about commerce between states. So those clauses in particular are also relevant to the analysis. One final clause that's very relevant is the 14th Amendment, not Section 3, and our friends uh, Will Bowden and Mike Paulson, but the first sentence of Section 1 says, anyone born or naturalized in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the state wherein they reside, which you see at a bare minimum seems to me absolutely to guarantee a person a right to leave one's current state and reside in, move to, travel to a different state. Now, the question is whether in in order to get an abortion, you have to leave Texas altogether and stop being a Texan, or whether you can go for a day or a week to New Mexico and, and come back. But I've given you now two answers, the structure of the Constitution as a whole and a series of clauses that need to be thought about and need to be thought about as a system. Privileges or immunities of Article 4, full faith and credit of Article 4, the Commerce Clause, including what lawyers would call its dormant aspects of Article 1, Section 8, and the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, saying at the minimum, you have a right to be a citizen of any state that you choose to reside in. The court has said as much, right? There was a case, Sands versus Roe. Sands um, versus Roe. Right, which says that you can, uh, that you can leave a state to go to another state. And then you can become a citizen of another state, and you're not, and uh, and you, and when you do, you have to be treated like every other citizen of that state. So when you move to Alaska, once you're a bona fide Alaskan, because they have so much oil money, they're awash in it. Sometimes instead of taxes, they actually give the citizens, you know, some of the, the the proceeds, the rents that they're getting, or royalties or whatever from the oil companies, and they can't basically say, oh, well, the old timers, you know, get. $1,000 a piece, but newcomers only 100 or something like that. So once you're an Alaskan, you're an equal Alaskan because you had a right to move to Alaska. Now, you have to be a bona fide Alaskan. So if you, you know, they can have rules, you know, your first day maybe doesn't count. You have to actually, for voting purposes, typically you have to be there at least 30 days um, in many jurisdictions. Yes, there is a right to be an Alaskan that is enjoyed by every American. And I, I will resist the temptation to make an Alaska joke because, well, I'll tell you anyway. Alaska is a very interesting place. It's got a really interesting culture, got a very interesting gender culture. There was a time when there were a lot more men in Alaska than women, kind of when it's Yukon territory. And so if you want, if you're a woman looking for a man, you know, a lot of men. Um, so the joke was, you know, in Alaska, if you're a woman looking for a man, you know, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, I think it's interesting this this business about you know where where this right is located because I mean it would seem to me you know you talk about the the first section of the Fourteenth Amendment, but this sounds like a privilege or immunity, you know, the right to move to another state, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and therefore. You know, so it's located, therefore, in two places in the Constitution, possibly. You're right, Andy. Um, I should have mentioned the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment as well, that, yes, one of your basic privileges and immunities is not just the right to become a resident of another state, but a right to go to another state, partake in general of the opportunities of that other state on equal terms. That other state can't 
discriminate against you. That's Article 4, privileges and immunities. And your state can't, you know, pen you in and prevent you from availing yourself of that. So, the, yes, it's the interlocking combination of those. Andy, I should have said that absolutely um, right. So in general, and Justice Kavanaugh doesn't elaborate the whole thing, but our traditions, if you're even applying a Glucksberg analysis, and they would call it substantive due process, but I would call it privileges and immunities. But in general, what states have ever in general said, not only can you not gamble in Texas, but we're not going to let you go on a weekend to Nevada and gamble. Has Texas ever tried to do that or Alabama or Connecticut for that matter? Oh, we will let you go to Wyoming, but we're not going to let you drive 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour on Wyoming freeways or something. You know, Texas doesn't generally try to to prevent you. There are other things I'm told that are actually you know, legal in Nevada, <laughs> aren't legal other places. Prostitution is legal in some places in Nevada. And I know of no state, this is like an outlier analysis, that's ever said, well, we'll let you go to Nevada, but we're not going to let you do things that are that are legal there, like engage in prostitution, um, whether as a, um, a sex worker or someone engaging, hiring a sex worker. One of the things that's happening with some of these these laws that they're trying to pass or that have passed in Texas, at least, is there, there, and this is kind of a very conscious policy that if you can read about in some of these articles, especially the article that you mentioned in the Washington Post, which I looked at, um, they're, set, they're trying to give one of these SBA type of frameworks to it so that, um, so that the way that this will be enforced is that, well, I'm a citizen and I see you're getting in your car to go, you know, you got a big belly and you're going over to another state or we're packing up your car. Well, I'm going to stop you or I'm going to sue you. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to call the police on you or whatever. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm enforcing the law. Mm-hmm. And you don't really have any recourse against me um, in order to enforce your constitutional right um, to go to another state. Or, or if you do have recourse, it's difficult to obtain. So there's, you know, a chilling effect. Um, and we talked about this at great length in our episodes with Ed Whalen in particular, my position, maybe even more emphatically than Ed's, was that those laws have a chilling effect only to the extent that you think that the Supreme Court would actually uphold them. But if it's absolutely clear that the Supreme Court would not uphold them, then don't worry, Justice Kavanaugh has your back. Now, he doesn't have your back on Roe versus Wade. And that's why SB8 actually was effective precisely because people, uh, abortion clinics, you know, were afraid to just defy SB8 because they were worried that when that got all the way up to the Supreme Court, they would lose. And they did on on Roe. But on this one, if they go all the way up to the Supreme Court, Justice Kavanaugh has told them in advance on right to travel, women Friends of women who want abortions out of state, friends of women who want abortions out of state, abortion providers out of state. Don't worry, I got your back. Now, now it's possible we're overreading those sentences. You, you could read them, you know, in a narrow, weaselly way. Uh, I don't think he meant it that way. He's going out of his way to say all this. And Andy, offline, you said, "Oh, and he says this is easy," and he's begin to give us a framework of what counts as easy. I am saying these are really. Un-American laws that pen people in. I understand that you might want to have a wall 
in Texas to keep people out because they don't have a right just to, to become Americans just because they want to. They don't. Okay. So I understand walls that keep people out because we have immigration policies and there are doors and you have That's to out of the out of the country, not out of the state. Correct. Walls that keep people in, either in America, trying to prevent you from from going elsewhere, or in one state, trying to prevent you from going to another state. Those are almost literally the definition of un-American. No, that's that's what the Eastern Bloc did. That's what the Soviets did. They tried to pen people in. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And and that was the greatest conservative of my lifetime, saying that, I would say, at one of his greatest moments. That was Ronald Reagan, you know, because totalitarian regimes pen people in. This is un-American. That's Justice Kavanaugh's intuition. It's a very powerful intuition. He doesn't elaborate the whole thing, but he did go out of his way to say it. And we applauded him when he did that because he's the only one who did that. And we wished that actually way before the liberals, instead of saying precedent, 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 we're really focused on this because we saw this coming, Andy, in our podcast. And so I'm going to be straight now. When other podcasts were telling you, oh, be worried about Griswold being overturned, you know, Obergefell being overturned, Loving versus Virginia being overturned, we said, no, that's actually scare, fear-mongering. That's not going to happen. And a year and a half has elapsed and nothing in that. He said, the things to be focused on are national abortion bans and efforts to, to, to pen people in because I could... I. I imagine they would try to do this. Um, and they are trying and, to do it. Yes, yes. Cause, well, here's, and and so, here and here's my Andy, and because because I actually spend time with conservatives. I read what they say, and I'm taking them seriously. And they've got a theory, and their theory is this is a wrong being done in Texas if you're conspiring in Texas to do certain things. And I'm saying, yes, but what you're conspiring in Texas to do, if you make an arrangement with an Uber driver or a friend to take you to the airport or to drive you across the state line, what you are conspiring to do is to engage in action that is legal in another American jurisdiction. So that's not a criminal conspiracy in general, as America has traditionally understood federalism and the right to cross state lines and the right to visit on marriage law. Very famously, people in my travel, they've never spent a moment of their life in New York state, but they might travel to people who are in love with each other to Niagara Falls to get married. You know, and come back, and then later on in America, this would be Nevada marriages or something like that. And you're allowed, even temporarily, to go to another American state, avail yourself typically of the, the rights and liberties that that state affords, and then go back to your home state. Here's what was let's talk about loving, because Virginia, it was really outrageous what Virginia did. Virginia not only didn't allow white person and a black person to marry. And in that, there were about 15 other states that seemed to be similar. But most of those other states didn't enforce that law very vigorously, the law in the books. Or even if they did, they had a loophole. They said, you can't get married in jurisdiction X if you're an interracial couple, but you're allowed to go to Niagara Falls 
on a weekend, get married, come back, and we will actually treat that as a valid marriage. So Virginia didn't. It was very unusual among actually states in trying to pen you in in that way and not giving full faith and credit to out-of-state marriages. We talked about this, Andy, in Obergefell. I was very critical of the dissenters in, in Obergefell, including my friend Sam Alito and the Chief Justice, you know, whom I hold in very high regard, because I said they had an obligation if they were going to reject the liberty and equality arguments for same-sex marriage, substantive due process, I would say privileges or immunities and the counting arguments, but especially just equal means equal means equal. If straights can marry, people who are born gay can marry. And if Patrick can marry Jane, then Patricia can marry Jane. Okay. So if you're going to reject that, okay. But then, and the majority didn't have to talk about it because it was giving um, the same-sex couple everything they wanted. But if you're going to reject that in dissent, you have to explain why, what the rules are going to be, because some states are allowing same-sex marriage. And are you going to basically say that same-sex marriage is valid in some states and not other states? And so you go get married out of state, and then as you're traveling down I-95, just like so many radio frequencies, your your marriage either, like radio stations fading in and fading out. Oh, I'm, we're married here. Oh, we just crossed the state line. Oh, no, we're no longer married. Oh, but in another hour, we're going to be married again, and, and then not. They owed the country an explanation about why they were implicitly, I think, rejecting a full faith and credit argument for um, out-of-state same-sex marriage. Well, the chief was was on that. Do you see anything um, there that's worrisome in terms of if he if he didn't see the argument there in terms of this equality of states or something like that? He full just didn't address credit. it. He didn't reject it. He, you know, and I thought that was just, you know, just unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. they, they were just silent on that. But Kavanaugh is going out of his way, in effect, to say, and let's talk about tradition, because Dobbs is about tradition. It is untraditional. He said right to travel, but I'm elaborating, giving you more, given his footnote one and all the rest. These are, in general, borderline un-American laws. So show me other times when states have tried to do this in other contexts. That's what I want. That's what I want to see. Show me outside of abortion situations where states are trying to pen you in, and and some of these, uh, like this this town, there are they even saying you can't choose to leave Texas altogether? You, you know, we're going to prevent you from from getting you know, to the airport and and just moving to California. You're allowed to move to California. You know, it's a little trickier if you just want to go for a weekend and come back. Well, but, they're saying but, you can't use the roads in their town. To, to leave Texas. This is, yes, this is the Soviet Union before the wall came down. This is Eastern Europe. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, you know, you said, well, show me a time when they did this. Well, there is a time when, when they did this. But, of course, it was expressly permitted in the Constitution as an exception, which is the fugitive slave law. Um, or fugitive, you know, the fugitive slave clause. Brilliant. And then later and, the fugitive slave And that's slave what our friend, Jim, law, yeah, law. Br- brilliant, brilliant. And that's what our friend Jamel Bowie is writing about in the New York Times. And and Andy, you know, let's just throw it out here. And maybe some one of his friends will will tell him and we'll reach out. Jamel, we'd love to have you on the podcast at some point. It'd mm-hmm. be great. Sure. But I think the fact that, that the Constitution had to go out of its way to specify that you could do this, you know, that, that this was an obligation of states, you know, there's perhaps a negative implication since they're not saying it for anything else you know, that that you would need express authority in order to do that. The default position would be the opposite, 
In other words, the default position would be that that uh, a state can't compel another state to, uh, you know, to do this. To, to uh, that you can't that you can't hem someone in in this matter. Let's say. Brilliant. Okay, maybe brilliant, but not so brilliantly expressed. Okay, well, um, so we do want to get some questions, but just one one thing here. You, it, it appears that that Justice Kavanaugh is saying pretty clearly that he believes that there is a constitutional right to interstate travel, okay? And that this is relevant to the question of whether you can travel to another state to obtain an abortion. Well, when we were talking in the past about um, about Roe, and people would assert an argument that, well, they relied on Roe to do certain things in their lives. They settled you know, in a, in a state that they knew was hostile to tech to abortion, um, but they knew that the, that they had a federal right to the constitutional right to this, so they weren't worried about that. And then suddenly, it's gone, and now, you know, they they relied on this to settle in Texas. It's not fair that they should have to get up and move to have reproductive freedom or something like that. So they relied on. It. So therefore, Roe shouldn't be overturned because there are these reliance interests. And you said at the time that there were several arguments against that, and you know, one of them was that it wasn't reasonable to rely on the court when the court had signaled so clearly that this was not going to be the case. Well, now you have Justice Kavanaugh. And by that, you just mean that in Casey, you know, it was it was five to four, and the Republican Party every four years keeps telling you that. So you should have been on notice that this was a very realistic possibility that they were going to undo Roe versus Wade. They they this is this is not a bolt from the blue. You could see it coming, and I I would tell my students every year for thirty years that this this was possibly coming. Just like I'm telling everyone now, if a, a Republican is elected president and that Republican has Republican House and Senate, do not be surprised if they try to pass a national abortion ban. So, all right, but in, so what I'm saying here is that well, is it reasonable for citizens to take take a certain degree of reliance interest? based on, or a certain degree of reliance, based on the, these statements from Justice Kavanaugh. Now you can sort of, you know, count to five, right? So yeah. So, um, is that reasonable, or is this not the kind of thing that, that citizens can permissibly rely on? Well, I think that should be a very important. And remember, Kavanaugh himself, you read the uh, words earlier, talked about the importance of reliance. That was one of the three factors, the egregiousness of error and the jurisprudential or practical consequences and the reliance interests or, or lack thereof. And one of the arguments I said is reliance can't always be the be all and end all because in the era of Plessy versus Ferguson, some people moved to segregationist jurisdictions, relying on you know the promise of Plessy that they were going to be able to create a, a white supremacist lifestyle in Alabama or whatever, um, Mississippi. And I said, no, that doesn't count for me um, so much. And if it doesn't, and, and it was legitimate for Brown to pull the rug out from under Plessy, which it did. And there were signals that it was moving toward that between 1938-1954, and if and you could say, well, lots of racial minorities of a certain sort in middle school and high school have been relying on affirmative action, and they kind of thought they needed to hit certain milestones and metrics in order to get into the school of their choice. And now that's all being, you know, uh, yanked out from under them in the. A recent affirmative action case, I would said, you know, no, no, you should have seen this coming to some extent, you know, because the court has been 
warning you about this, even in Gruden Gratz saying 25 years and, and other things. So you've kind of you know been on notice that you might be living on borrowed time here, that this affirmative action window might be closing at some point. So here, no, there's the signals that, that they're sending are because no one is contradicting Justice Kavanaugh in this. No one is saying, oh, we disagree with that. They may be silent, well, but the and he is the fifth vote. The legislators in Texas are contradicting him that because they're, they're passing these laws that clearly would fly in the face of such a right. Right. Although that's one or two jurisdictions, that's not a whole bunch. And, right. and the court is actually telling, or at least the the median member, the pivotal member. This is what Ruth and we discussed. You know, he, as it were, sits in the Kennedy seat, both literally and metaphorically. He's the median on the court. He's telling us, he's going out of his way to say, chill, relax. Don't worry on this. Okay. Now he's entitled to change his mind on this or anything else. Justice Kennedy changed his mind in the middle of his deliberations on Casey. You know, things could happen to justices. They'd ha- they could leave voluntarily or not. And then the median shifts and all the rest. But no other justice is saying, Justice Kavanaugh, where, where are you getting this right to travel idea, you know, from or something like that? That's not what they're saying. You know, last in our, our re- recent episode, we talked about um, enumerated, unenumerated and implicit rights. Um, based on the analysis that we conducted earlier of what the nature of the interstate travel right is, it's, it does not sound like an unenumerated right. It sounds like an implicit right. Um, I and think therefore, that's how I would put it. Yeah, and therefore one would um, perhaps be more secure in relying on it than relying in a right that is based on accounting, uh, you know, that is an unenumerated right. And some of the arguments in favor of Roe were that these are unenumerated rights to, to privacy or are unenumerated. Griswold is, is on that basis. Um, mm-hmm. so, that, uh, so that you could possibly feel more justified in relying on interstate travel because of the fact that it's, you know, implicit in the Constitution as right. opposed to unenumerated and therefore could change. I may have been jumped too quickly to agree. I would say it's both. So it's not merely unenumerated, although it is that on accounting approach, and it's also implicit. So belt and suspenders. Mm-hmm. Right. My point is that 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 unenumerated alone is a slimmer read. Correct. Right. So, you know, yeah. Belt alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, those suspenders sometimes are useful. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, as one gets older. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, so we. Yes, audience should know that I'm about to turn 65. By the time you hear this, I'll be, you know, I'll no longer be able to just sing that uh, Paul McCartney tune from Sergeant Pepper with the same joie de vivre about, you know, when I'm 64, because I will now be eligible for Social Security and all of that stuff. Yes, and we're going to have to rephrase your uh, claim to frequent citation by the court. That's, you know, the uh, scholars under 65 or something yes. like that. I've already changed it to mid-career scholars, uh, yes. Okay. Or non-emeritus, I think non-emeritus scholars is okay. actually, you well, know, I've, I've, I've modified that. And Andy, I'm just, because of the internet and all the rest, and I often allow myself to, just all the pop-up ads that I'm getting, oh, you know, about a flatulence and incontinence and uh, impotence <laughs> and all these things. <laughs> They're making all sorts of assumptions about me um, as I approach my 65th birthday okay well fortunately we won't address those okay um all right so you know we promised we'd take some questions and now we're you know pretty <laughs> far into the podcast but we, we, we should have time for 
for one or two. So a lot of people have written in about affirmative action. And one of the, I guess, in this, this theme of, you know, what does one decision mean for, enough for, for the future, which we've sort of been exploring in this episode. Um, here's a question from uh, Artie Isaac, one of our listeners, um, actually a member of my class at Yale. So Hey, Artie. Yeah. Um, so how does uh, gender play into the conversations about affirmative action, he asks. He says, two college presidents have told me if admissions process was gender blind, each freshman class would be filled two times over by women. As a male applicant admitted to Yale College, might I have been the beneficiary of a quota system that benefited less qualified candidates like So, Artie, thanks for your question again. I'm not sure you and I overlapped at Yale, but delighted that you're listening to the podcast. Since you asked a question that can be understood narrowly or broadly, I'll try to answer in both ways. Narrowly, you're asking in part about places like Yale. I just want to remind everyone those are private institutions. Even though they get tax benefits and, and all the rest there under various provisions of the tax code as charities, 501c3s or, or whatever, actually they're educationally maybe a slightly different section, but they're private institutions. And the key point to make is that the Constitution in general limits the government and not private persons. That was what we talked about in great detail. The government can't be bigoted or prejudiced in certain ways, but private people can. Um, the government can't discriminate on grounds of sex in all sorts of ways, but an individual can in his or her or their dating practices. The government can't have a religion, but individuals have an absolute right to have a religion. The government can't discriminate against this party, political party, or that one, but I, as an individual, am, of course, free to say I'm a Democrat and I have a strong preference for that party. Government can't do that. Okay. So Yale and other private institutions are not bound by the Constitution. Now, in the, the joint cases, the Harvard and the University of North Carolina cases decided by the Supreme Court, they were kind of consolidated. Why? Because there's a statute, even though Harvard's private, and the UNC is public. So the Constitution applies to University of North Carolina, but not to Harvard. But there's a statute that applies to Harvard. And the statute is Title VI. And here's what the Supreme Court opinion says in its second footnote. Title VI provides that, quote, no person in the United States shall on the ground of race, color, or national origin be excluded from participation in, be denied benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And that includes schools like Harvard. Okay. We have previously explained, this is the court footnote goes on, that discrimination that violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment by the government committed by an institution that accepts federal funds constitutes a violation of Title VI. So the court says we're not going to actually need a separate analysis for UNC and Harvard because the rules that apply constitutionally when it comes to race to UNC apply as a matter of statute to a private school like Harvard. Okay, Artie, that's not true of gender. The statute's about discrimination on the grounds of race, color, or national origin. It says nothing about sex discrimination, and Artie, that's why... You, uh, there are in the world major 
same-sex institutions, private ones, that do not seem legally problematic. The Wellesleys of the world, the, the Smiths, uh, Mount Holyoke's. Contrarywise, a government educational institution that was sex discriminatory would be extremely problematic. And indeed, in one of her most famous decisions, I think maybe her best decision ever, her most canonical decision, the one that's um, really kind of landmark and epic, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg writing for the court in the Virginia Military Institute case, the VMI case, struck down sex discrimination in a public university. Why do I say that's her most important decision? She wrote a dissent, but it was only a dissent in the Lily Ledbetter case about employment discrimination, but it was a statutory case and it was a dissent. Congress later sided with her, but VMI is a constitutional case and she writes a majority opinion. I know another really important majority opinion that she did write is the Arizona redistricting case, the AIRC case, which was so important, Andy, in our amicus brief, Steve Calabresi, Vic Amar, with you and Chris Duggan helping Akil and Vic and Steve. And the AIRC case was really important in Moore versus Harper in an amicus brief in the opinion. And that's a great RBG opinion as well. But RBG becomes a justice in part because of her crusading work for women's rights. Our friend Jeff Rosen, the head of National Constitution Center, called her, rightly so dubbed her, the Thurgood Marshall of the women's rights movement. Thurgood Marshall was a crusading lawyer for racial justice and then became a justice. Um, he, ar he argued and won Brown versus the Board of Education. He was the, the lawyer at the oral argument for the national the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Color Persons. So she was the great crusading lawyer and a scholar for women's rights before she became a judge and then a justice. Justice Thurgood Marshall was a great crusading lawyer before he became a judge and then a justice. Her greatest opinion, I think, is the VMI case. It's a majority opinion for the court, and she says government educational institutions can't discriminate on grounds of sex. But private institutions can constitutionally, because the Constitution doesn't apply to them, and can statutorily, because Title VI doesn't apply to them in that way. And, and when we had Jeff Brenzel on, we talked about private, historically, black colleges, and, and those are uh, complex in all sorts of ways. Now, of course, it's Title VI is a title of a statute. It's the title of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, Title VII, which is as Justice Gorsuch just said, adjacent or right next door, um, does prohibit discrimination uh, on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin in employment. In employment, right. correct. So, and then actually was amended. So, so, so males are hired for the faculty, for staff positions, for administrative positions, for grounds maintenance and all the rest. Yes, you will, you will have male employees at... Smith and and Holyoke and 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 Wellesley, right? That's actually amended that statute later. Um, that title uh, in the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, and that which provides for like punitive damages if you don't uh, if you misbehave under this statute, but under this title. But at any rate, okay. So you're you're drawing this this distinction. So there's a congruence right now between the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, protections and title six but of course that congruence could be lost if title six were amended or with repealed or, or superseded or whatever 
Um, it's not a, a constitutional decision that they're congruent, right. really. It's just that that's the way the court is interpreting the statute. Um, so that's why it's able to decide these two cases together. But of course, if you didn't like the, you know, if you're a, a legislator and you don't like the affirmative action decision opinion, and you would like to see affirmative action, you know, resumed at some level, you could, you know, presumably be part of a movement to amend Title VI, and then that would mean that different rules applied even on race to uh, public and private institutions. So, and you and you and I, Andy, think that might not be a bad idea. Mm-hmm. We think that private institutions that are getting special tax benefits as charities, they have to be charitable. They can't, a school counts as a charity, but not a school for thieves. Okay. That, that, that doesn't count as a proper charity, even though it's going to teach you how, how to pick a pocket or two. And a private charity should not be discriminating against historically underrepresented, disempowered groups. That shouldn't count as a charity. But you and I think, and, and Jeff Brenzel, you know, in our conversations with him, if, if, our, if our audience wants to go back and listen to those episodes, you know, we were open to the idea that a private institution that as a true charity might see part of its mission to be especially attentive to undoing the effects of centuries of exclusion first because of slavery and then because of segregation, especially of, of blacks, but maybe other groups as well, Native Americans, that even if government can't do that for certain reasons, it has to be colorblind, even if you think that, you know, um, maybe private charitable institutions can and should do that to help m- make ours a more inclusive society. And if you think that, then maybe that statute should be modified. Andy, that's what you and I have talked about offline. And I think we said that in previous episodes. And I think I reported, at least to you offline, maybe in previous episodes, that folks, my friends, some of my friends at the Cato Institute, which is a conservative entity, but believes in private freedom and private choice. Some of them seemed very open to this idea. So a couple of things. First of all, you know, you say, well, these are charitable institutions, they should be charitable. In all fairness, they're charities, uh, under the tax law, um, yes. you know, 501c3 corporations are either foundations or they're charities. Mm-hmm. And if you're a foundation, then you've got all sorts of reporting requirements and that sort of thing. So most, I'm the president of a 501c3, so I know something about this, um, Ever Scholar. And, you know, if you're, go- if you're going to be a 501c3... Which is our sponsor. Yes. If you're going to be a 501c3, then you don't want to be a foundation if you can avoid it. Um, so you want to be a charity. But to be a charity, you don't have to actually be charitable. You have to fit into one of several definitions, educational, what several categories. An educational institution um, qualifies uh, a uh, religious institution, and then there are other right. categories right. as but well. Not just all education. That's why I like my hypothetical of Fagan's School for Thieves. Right. We t- teach you to how to pick a pocket or two, because yes. that doesn't count right. as, as bona fide education. That's true, but but the... But the differentiation is not made based on whether or not you're charitable in, in, in the you know traditional sense. Right. Anyway, but it could be because we're talking about yeah. amending the statute. You're and, allowed and what, to be charitable, right? Sorry. Right. Right. So yeah. what, what I am saying is a school. It's an educational school. But if it said we're for whites only, I would say no. That should not count. That should not get special tax benefits as a five hundred one c three. And and the Supreme Court decided that this case is called the Bob. 
Jones decision. Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness to Bob Jones, their policy wasn't actually whites only. It was no interracial dating, which you know had a for- certain formal symmetry to it. But there were some background elements that seemed truthfully, especially given history, white supremacist about this. And the Supreme Court said, well, Bob Jones, you're entitled to have a religious views and, and educational views. But under the IRS rules, we don't count you as a proper 501c3. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to say uh, about that, uh, th- those comments that you had, was that you're saying, it seems to me, that if Title VI were modified, and now we say, okay, certain affirmative action you know, programs will be allowed, the Baki prohibition against um, having reme- a remedial basis um, for these accommodations, um, the, the pro- Baki prohibited that, right? And you couldn't yeah. have quotas, but you could have it. Possibly, yes. uh, if if Title VI were modified, so that so that the some of the arguments against affirmative action uh, in recent years that well it's it's just you know this based on this diversity notion and that it doesn't have any endpoint and it creates this infrastructure and and it's self perpetuating and things like that those there might be an answer to those arguments if you adopted a remedial basis and you had certain metrics that you satisfy them and then, you know, game over. Brilliant. Um, so that actually it could be a uh, a program that met the approval of a, of a higher percentage of the population. It, it could be affirmative action pursued more honestly. Again, if the statute were modified, because you wouldn't have to call it diversity mm-hmm. um, if you didn't want to. And, and our friend Jeff was talking, uh, you know, and he's on the board of, an historically black college, Morehouse. No, that's it's open to actually whites as well as black. But even the word history, the word history is not about diversity. It's about the past, which might be see about remedy. If you say historically black, oh, now you're telling me something. I honestly, when you say those words historically black, I immediately flash to slavery and segregation. And when you say diversity, I know what people mean it to be, but the but the word actually it's not necessarily about segregation slavery. It's, oh, we, you know, we want, you know, all flavors. And that's different than historically black. Mm-hmm. Right. So, all right. But um, I think part of the essence of this question that we're trying to answer here w- goes to whether or not the decision uh, extends to to other groups and to other types of discrimination you know, and so forth. So you're oh, saying, okay. Oh, you know, and so I think you've answered one aspect of it, that okay. in private okay. institutions, but what about in public institutions? And what about... So in-, in public institutions, I do not see... It was an education case. It was an education and admissions case. But I see the logic of this opinion as sweeping beyond education and admissions in particular. Oh, so I think the logic of this, you know, this is like... I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them in public educational admissions. And I, I told you, public is important because it's the Constitution. But if I don't like green eggs and ham, I don't like them in a box with a fox in the rain, on a train, you know, here or there, anywhere. So if the court is saying it's violation of a core constitutional principle to basically treat people differently because of their race, because the Constitution is basically colorblind in almost every way. If that's what the court is saying, and I, I think that's what the court is saying, 
when it comes to public education, that just wouldn't be about admissions. That would be about scholarships and, and all sorts of other things in within education, employment, and not just about education, you see, because it would be about government in other domains as well, in, in contracting and in administration of all sorts of other programs. Brown said, we are not following Plessy in the field of public education. Here's the quote. We hold that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. So they said education, 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 but then immediately the next year, instead of procurements, they say, oh, also no segregation in public beaches. Oh, also no segregation in public golf courses. Oh, also no segregation in public buses, which are transportation, which was the domain, you see, of of Plessy versus Ferguson. That was a train. And eventually they said in Loving versus Virginia, oh, no race discrimination in marriage laws. That was 1967. So Brown came finally to be understood just to be a rule about no race discrimination of a certain sort across the board. And now the court, I think with this case, is announcing a similar principle. And yes, on the facts, it's about education and within education and mission. But the logic of that opinion is going to sweep across the entire landscape of government action, not private action, not governed by the Constitution, but government action. And state attorneys general who are trying to ratchet back or eliminate various affirmative action programs outside of educational missions are doing it maybe for two reasons. Jeff seemed to say, well, they just want to do it. They don't like affirmative action. They're using this as a cover. That might be true. But I'm also saying they have obligations to follow the Constitution. And if they don't follow the Constitution, as the Supreme Court understands it, they're going to get their asses sued and they're going to lose. And so actually they're not hallucinating when they read this opinion's logic as radiating beyond public school admissions. They see it as applying to government generally and education outside of admissions and scholarships, programs, employment, affirmative action programs, much more generally across the board that are public. And it seems like that could be very sweeping in its effect. I mean, there are, you know, if you work in government, you know that that just about any program that you can think of has, you know, incentives from minority hiring and things like that. Yeah. You have to a certain percentage or whatever. There might be scholarship programs that are specifically for particular groups, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So you're saying that when it comes to public institutions, that many of these things will be called into question. Now, now how far does private title... employment is a little different because the court has allowed um, a certain kind of affirmative action in private employment, and that's under a statute, and that raises some additional wrinkles that we should talk about maybe in another episode. But as applied to public institutions governed by the Constitution, I'm reading this case. It's I think it's logic, and, and you're allowed to disregard the the logic, but just then don't be surprised if you get sued and lose all the way up, or definitely um, at the Supreme Court. Well, but and and also you know we're saying public, but Private too. I mean, under this interpretation of, of Title VI, here's what it says. Or, you know, be blah, blah, dot, 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 be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity right. receiving federal financial assistance. Right. Not not just the admissions program. Scholarship not, not programs. Just college, are, not yeah. just education, not just, doesn't yeah. say those words. Yeah. So, um, 
What's your prediction regarding where the court might consider the limiting, you know, the sort of a, the bounds of this kind of decision? Where, where might it say, okay, we didn't mean to go that far? A conventional hypothetical or example uh, for those who say colorblindness everywhere is in a prison race riot, at least temporarily, you could separate the inmates on racial grounds temporarily to quell a race riot. And that's not colorblind. You know, they'd have to look at me and decide, you know, whether I'm in cell block white or cell block black, if there are only two cell blocks or something, maybe there's a third one, but that's the, that's the classic example used by law professors. Well, but from a practical point of view, I'm not sure, you know, that's the most practical limiting. Well, so the colorblindness principle is a sweeping principle. That's why I keep referring to Dr. Seuss, the logician, in a box with a fox, in the rain, I'm on a train here or there, everywhere. I do not like green eggs and him. You can't take race into account. Oh, my gosh. That's a sweeping. If you're the government, that's a sweeping principle. Okay. So, um I think we'll come back to this because there are, you know, some case, you know, obviously, so there are some yeah. cases there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good place to stop for today. Thank you for that that interesting question, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll, but again, lots more on affirmative action and its extension as time goes. And Artie, as the school year begins, I just remember that I arrived at Yale on my 18th birthday back in 1976, and yes, we were actually the beneficiaries of certain systems in place. Yale wasn't as international as it is today. Yale was way more male than it is today. Formally or informally, maybe we did benefit from all sorts of systems privilege. The good news, Artie, is, um, and this is a reliance interest point, Andy, they can't take our degrees back. (laughs) Let's hope. Okay, well, happy birthday to Akil. And, uh, thank you, Andy, and, and also to you. Thank you. And we'll be back next week. Thank you.